Anybody there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, could you get us get us the route again? Okay, I see you. Okay. I'll get back uh, geared up and then we'll go on the go for a little bit. Ramiah Whiteside and Kevin Cook are on the third day of their journey on foot from Milwaukee, Wisconsin to Madison, Wisconsin. They are members of Expo, or Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing, and are formerly incarcerated individuals themselves. It turned out to be the coldest week of the year. We're not out here running below zero temps, sub-zero temps, uh, just because it makes good footage. We're out here for one, to bring their awareness, but to send a signal, okay? okay? We're not done. And one thing I'll, we won't apologize for is being intentional, okay? So we're intentional about our message. Our message is treat people within your custody more humanely. Now that we are approaching a year of COVID-19 in America, our incarcerated population are being pushed to their limits even more. We want to share some of our connections to those incarcerated and returning citizens and the reality of their experiences here in Wisconsin. This is Eli Steenlidge. I'm Rebecca Barber, also known as Boss Lady, and you're about to hear some justified anger. people there now who are eligible and they've done their programs they've been stellar individuals men and women they've got no rule infractions they're ready to come home right now right now literally if, if you ask the DOC check the records they're ready to come home now they got strong support systems and they won't release them why 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 do we have to have 25 more deaths of people who should have been released a long time ago that makes no sense so I know how it felt when I was in, and I wasn't in during a pandemic. I was just in during the regular flu season. It feels like you're waiting to go to a gas chamber. That's what it feels like. Because you know, this pandemic is deadly. If you have nowhere to run, nowhere to go, you're just a sitting duck, you're waiting. So we're gonna transition to the road here as much as possible. Uh, so you're coming with us. Sounds good. <laughs> so I'm gonna put my uh, ear things back on so we can have better connection. So I can okay. hear you now while I'm doing that, but you might not be able to hear Kevin as much. So okay, um, all right. Am I there? I can hear you. I just got to check in with the crew. Sure. I caught up with Ramaya and Kevin by phone while they were taking a short break at a gas station. It was Wednesday, which means they were halfway through their run to the Wisconsin capital. They were planning to arrive by Friday for a press conference. Here's Ramaya. So Kevin and I, we worked out for years together um, and we usually, you know, we do circuit training, things like that. So I guess the biggest surprising thing was we're old, <laughs> you know, I'm past 45. His birthday was last Saturday. Uh, we're both past 45, actually. Um, so I guess it's an appreciation of where we are age wise. What's behind this idea to do the, the walk run uh, to raise awareness? Um, well, it, it's an extension um, as for, for Expo, Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing. Um, we had, with our office, we have programs that 
stay in touch with people uh, currently incarcerated. And that's through our IVE, RVP programs. And IVE is uh, Integrated Voter Engagement and RVP is Relational Voter Program. So through those programs from the previous election, what we do is just educate people about all things politics, just educate them politics 101. So, well, from staying in touch with that whole cohort of people, when the pandemic hit, they would give us updates on this is what's going on during the pandemic. I just got sick. They're not doing anything within the uh, Department of Corrections. Um, and we kept getting emails and phone calls and letters saying, hey, they're not helping us. They're just sitting in here or letting us sit here uh, under the gun. Nothing's being done. So now we, we've been a year plus or, or going on a year plus with the pandemic and it's still bad. Not just bad, things were getting worse. There were multiple outbreaks in Wisconsin prisons over the last several months. A few months ago, we started getting calls from family members or uh, support systems in the community saying, hey, I haven't heard from my son, I haven't heard from my loved one, don't know what's going on, don't know if they're alive, don't know what's going on. So through our different filters, we start looking into, well, what's going on? What's going on? What can we find out? And unfortunately, people started dying and we started getting more notices and more confirmations that people were dying of COVID specifically. So to date, we have 25, at least 25 confirmed cases. However, we know there have been others. They're just not categorized as uh, COVID deaths, COVID-19 deaths. So from the people on the inside continuously contacting us saying, hey, we're scared. Uh, we can't properly socially distance. They're not giving us disinfectants. We, don't, we can't do our laundry because on a modified lockdown, which is modified movement, you can't move. Okay, the system is broken and it was designed to be that way. Okay, so let's get that clear. You may be wondering what Ramaya means when he says that the correctional system was built that way. Aaron Hicks, who you will be hearing more from in an upcoming episode, often gives a unique answer to this question. When people express to Aaron their surprise that the correctional system can be so broken, can imprison more black men in Wisconsin than any other state, can treat inmates as less than human, he simply says that the system is actually working perfectly. It is operating the way that it is intended. The prison industrial system is a modern form of slavery for people of color. It is a booming economic system that prizes profit over people. This is why Ramaya and Kevin are trying to make a scene with their run, to point to the individual stuck in the middle of a pandemic and a system making a business out of their incarceration. Just the thing that really set us off was when they wanted to introduce legislation to say um, people 65 and under would not be prioritized to get vaccinated. That clinched it. And we just said, hey, we're gonna run because of the people on the inside, they have nowhere to run. So we said, this is what we're gonna do. Uh, we're gonna take our message and our voice, uh, representing those people who uh, historically haven't had a voice. We're gonna take their situations straight to Madison. So that's the gist of running for their lives. Kevin Cook's story of COVID in the prisons is a harrowing experience that points to the lack of communication and a decisive plan by the Department of Corrections to handle cases within the facilities. The handling of the pandemic and the health of inmates left Kevin and his family in a dangerous position. It all began uh, March 17th of 2020. Uh, 
I was at a work center and at the time I had a job and I was working outside uh, in the community. So they brought us all in once uh, Governor Evers uh, shut down all you know businesses. So they brought us all in and said we all couldn't you know go back outside of the center. So from March uh, 17th all the way up to the point as to where I was released, we were under modified COVID protocols. We weren't really quarantined and the administration, in my opinion, I believe they failed initially from that standpoint. So uh, over the course of those seven months, I would say, uh, it was lackluster. It was lackluster protocol. It was lackluster concern. Uh, the staff, they really weren't uh, being diligent in their own uh, health and safety because the staff, they were able to go, come and go, come and go because they had to work. They were considered essential workers, so they had to work. But we don't know what they were doing outside of the center. Can you tell me, just like personally, how did you feel during, you said it was like seven months where you guys were restricted and so you're you don't really you have a job to go to you don't have um, activities that you can really get out and do how did that feel it it felt like i was uh moving in reverse because basically when i first started this uh incarceration i was in a maximum setting so in the maximum setting you go absolutely nowhere you do basically yourself for 23 hours of the day so that's what it reverted back to and that's what my mindset reverted back to so uh Long story short, one inmate received, well, tested positive because they, uh, at one point, came around. They asked us, you know, if we had any symptoms, symptoms like high fever, loss of taste, loss of, you know, smell, things of that nature, diarrhea and all of that. So one inmate said yes. So they tested him. He came back positive. But this one inmate, he was in a cell with two other individuals because in the center where we are, there are double cells, triple cells, and quadruple cells. So he was in the cell with two other individuals. So that one inmate led to three inmates, led to, in I would say, a two-month span, 85 out of 115 individuals being tested positive. So I was in the cell uh, with one other inmate. We were in the double cell. And he started receiving symptoms in November. And when he started receiving uh, symptoms in November, November, he, he contacted the uh, HSU staff and the HSU staff, when he contacted them, he told them, he was like, I'm starting to feel symptoms. I can't taste, I can't smell. But at that time, we had just got all tested. The whole entire center got tested November 9th. November 11th, he reported this. And the HSU staff, she told him that her supervisor said that because we got tested, previous we're not going to test you again so from i would say november 11th all the way until i was released in december on december 7th i was in the cell with an individual who had symptoms and uh they test you before they're about to release you uh five days before they're about to release you so they tested me five days before i was about to release the day before i was scheduled to be released which was december 8th they told me kevin you tested positive for covid and they released me on that December 7th. So the individuals who set my life up outside 
in society for me to be released on Tuesday, they had to get contacted. They had to rearrange everything. They had to literally clear out a whole space for me to go in quarantine. And that was the gist of it. They didn't, you know, I had no insurance. I had absolutely nothing to lean on. I had absolutely nothing to go forward towards, but you tested positive, we're kicking you out in the community. Stay safe. I'll get back uh, geared up and then we'll go on the go for a little bit. Thank second. you. Yep. Uh, you guys, we're coming out. We're getting back on the road. You got to direct us to the route because my uh, Bluetooth is being used for this interview. You had a route? Is it going this way? Yep, that's the way you yep. see it. Okay. Yep. yep, back to you. Yep. Can you hear me? Now we're okay. on the road. Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, so what it feels like, I think the sense of purpose it, 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 it connects to the fact that, again, when, when I was in for such a long time in Kevin, the sense of urgency for us is, like, we still wake up going through some residuals and doing so much time. So there's an extension of kind of some post-traumatic stress stuff where, I mean, I did 20-plus years. He did 20-plus years. You don't just wake up and mm. all that is gone. So a sense of urgency is just understanding what that feels like. And we want to let them know on the inside, you've got a voice out here. We're an extension of your voice. And we want them to know that. So, and it's an extension of Kevin and, I, and my faith. That's what we believe. So there's a faith component involved in why we're doing what we're doing. So, Is there a sense when you're doing this of, like you said, you were behind bars for you know, 20 some years and then just being out free on the road here just to be able to run. And, you know, what, what do you think about as you're, you know, just sort of out here running about the guy still in prison and you being able to just run out here where you want to? Well, I'm extremely grateful because had I not been released, had Kevin not been released, we would also be you know, up under the gun right now. Again, you know, Kevin got released positive, so he knows what that feels like. But to be out here, it's a blessing. Um, I mean, I wake up every day grateful that I have been provided this opportunity to uh, be a contributing member to society so yeah to wake up and go to work or play with my grandbabies or uh you know right next to my wife things of that nature my own house i mean this comes from the people believing in us our support systems you know from us get, get, being given a chance mm. all of this is an extension of that so we're also running to bring awareness to the fact that we're not the exceptions to the rule. We can, we can multiply people being successful upon release. So you don't have to keep them way, way beyond their release date or keep them, especially during a pandemic. It, that makes no sense. When people are inside, they're not paying taxes. They're not going to you know, real jobs. 
They're not paying on their child support. You know, they got underlying health conditions. They've got diabetes. They got some obesity issues, asthmatic issues, cardiovascular issues. And so you're just, you're just holding them in uh, for what? Long enough for them to get sick and die? I don't know. Maybe it makes sense to some of the people that want to pass legislation with this get tougher on crime narrative. How much tougher can death? That's the question I want to answer. This means so much to us that our brothers and sisters, our men and women, our fellow citizens are dying. Okay, I don't care what numbers they put out saying, oh, our infection rate is 90, 98% better. Okay, well, I've got current data from people in those trenches saying, no, I just tested positive again, a second time. What can we do better? We can reduce the prison population from the people who are currently old law prisoners, currently eligible for parole, who've been eligible for at least 10 years. Release them to their support systems. Why do you have to wait till they get sick or die? There's eight people that I know personally out of the 25 that have died, they're dead. They don't get released. So that's one ask. And we got traffic here. We gonna hold a second. Jump, we're gonna jump with the vehicle. Okay, I'll jump in. Um, I got a little traffic jam. It's a little too close. So again, that's an ask. I invite the governor, somebody from his office. I invite specifically Mandela. Like I said, he did this work in the past. Show up at the press conference and let's just have a conversation. Expo has already tried several attempts at gaining Governor Tony Evers' attention in order to respond to the pandemic situation in Wisconsin jails and prisons, including the concerning outbreaks in November and December. Family members of those incarcerated joined Expo in a sit-in at the governor's mansion for weeks in the fall of 2020, besides demonstrations at the state capitol building itself to demand a response. Governor Evers can do it. It doesn't even have to go across his desk. Uh, Mr. Tate is the one who has been doing all the re releases as of late. Mm -hmm. So Chair per Parole Commissioner Tate, who he has been doing a much better job than his predecessors. However, he can't just do a mass exodus of releases without getting some type of response from the governor. You see what I mean? Yeah. Because there, there would there be an outcry coming from uh, one one or the other side of the aisle. However, if we support Tate in doing his job, which is what he was nominated for, which is releasing the people who are eligible, who are no longer posing a risk to anyone in the community, Tate can do that. And yes, Evers can do that. He doesn't have to do it via uh, executive clemency. He can do it from what already is on the books to release people. So they always have these sound bites that says, um, we've done more pardons than any other previous administrations. We're doing the clem. You wanna know what? For a person to get pardoned, that means they're already in the community. That means they're not in a uh, institutional setting. So they're not worried about contracting COVID and dying. I mean, good job, yes, good for them. But it's not reducing the prison population. That's the point. So 
briefly, could you explain for people listening, maybe that don't have a full understanding of, you know, people's sentences and the time that they're scheduled to to spend incarcerated. When you say you're pushing for people to be released so that they can be safe, can you break that down a little bit for people who might not understand and say, well, weren't they sentenced? Don't they have to spend their time? Okay, so I can break that down. Just a second ago, I mentioned the parole eligible people. So those people, anybody under the old law who was eligible for parole, they were sentenced before truth and sentencing. So that means um, they've been incarcerated now for those still under the old law for at least 20 years, because this is the year 2021. So the new law didn't kick in until 1999, going into 2000. So all old law prisoners right now who are eligible for parole, which means they are eligible, they can be released from the parole board tomorrow. Those are, or that group of people, you have, I mean, you have some that have a higher number, you have some, you have some lifers or whatever, but you also have between two and 300 who um, they go and they get a six month defer, a seven month defer, uh, a three month defer. They can be released right now. So that cohort are able to be released on this next band up here. Um, so they were sentenced with, say they had 40 years. After a quarter of their sentence, uh, after if it's, if it's 20, a quarter of that is what, five? So after that five years, they become eligible for release. What has happened when we transition from to truth and sentencing, truth and sentencing, they do 75% to 85% of their time. Well, all old law guys, uh, men and women, now also have been made to do 75 and 85% of their time, even though they were sentenced under a, a, a system that allowed for parole release. I'm currently a parole release. I got released after two plus decades. And that was after years of doing what I needed to do, petitioning, uh, garnering my support from state senators, uh, legislatures, even my own sentencing judge. So for the ones that are parole eligible, we're not just saying, hey, they didn't do all their time. You should let them go. From how they were legally sentenced, they can also be legally released now. That's the difference. Now for truth and sentencing, we're also advocating for people to be released who um, have nonviolent offenses. You have people that are waiting in there to do their programs like ERP. You can do your uh, ERP program in the community. You can do your substance abuse programs in the community. You don't have to wait another year because the waiting list currently in the Department of Corrections is at least two years. So you gotta wait another two years to get in your program that's at least six to eight months. And then you get to, you know, if you complete it, you get to go home early. Do the math, does that make sense? Especially when these people, when they become eligible to take the program, that means they're eligible for release. Come on. All right, so we're back talking to Rebecca Barber, who we um, heard from on the first episode about conditions in the correction system. And Rebecca, you were able to attend the press conference 
of Ramaya and Kevin when they arrived in Madison at the Capitol. Um, and then um, they had a press conference downtown at a hotel. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, um, hearing from the men once they've they accomplished their goal of arriving there, running there, and um, and just hearing their message of what they were trying to accomplish? Absolutely. You know, first and foremost, they were a little out of breath and cold, but um, they. what was nice was before the actual conference started, as far as answering questions and just talking about, you know, what it is that they were, they were doing, they were able to kind of stand in a round uh, discussion. So some of the community that showed up had the opportunity to just speak freely and ask questions and, and share their thoughts. And both of the gentlemen actually were joined in by a third individual by the name of Kyle. I apologize, I can't remember his last name, but Kyle ran the last stretch of the run in Madison. And um, so all three of them got to speak on their experience. And there was, I know there was a legislative representative that appeared and he showed up. I, I can't recall his name, but he apparently was very interested in the story prior to the run and has been doing a little bit of outreach and and sending some letters and corresponding with uh, Ramaya and Kevin regarding the uh, situations that they're drawing attention to as far as COVID in the prisons go. So it was nice to see at least some sort of representation from the legislative branches that we have, you know, in office right now. It would have been nice to see more support as far as from people that are in the Capitol and people that can create change. But I think everything starts from step one. So the fact that they have begun to try to receive some more media coverage and they've begun to try to get their message out, they basically said that, you know, that that was a a run, but it's just the beginning of the battle. You know, it's they haven't they're not finished yet and they're going to continue onward. So it was nice to see the uh, community come together and listen to their stories and actually, you know, kind of talk off the grid. To everyone who uh, listens with the boss lady, I would just like to say the majority of you guys are in prison who listen. And boss lady, I believe she covered this from day one. So I'm letting you all know that we finished the race. We finished the race, but we haven't finished the battle. And we are going to continue to speak up for you men and women. We're going to continue to advocate for you men and women, and we are going to continue to push forward. If we have to do another run, we will. If we have to ride a bike, we will. But we are definitely going to continue to stand for you. We're still going to continue to raise our voices for you. We just need for you all to know that you are loved, that you are protected and we you know just got you you know just like we had you when we were inside we got you out here these two guys running to raise awareness on this issue to have this goal of more people hearing about what's happening to you know those that they knew that are still incarcerated and then other people incarcerated in wisconsin and because the the news about conditions and people's experiences is not getting out there, these men had to do something to kind of get people's attention, right? Um, Something sort of drastic. I mean, what do you think that says that people who maybe have better circumstances, better 
opportunities to do something about this situation because there there is a lot to do as we've explored in this podcast there's there's a lot to be done besides the covid situation what does it say that these guys that have already been through a lot traumatic situations come through it getting their life together and they have to be the ones that sort of put themselves out there and like you said risking uh these cold temperatures to make this point what what do you think that kind of says Well, I think, you know, when you experience those things from the inside and um, like I said, that that camaraderie about it and just knowing that, you know, you've been released and you have an opportunity now at life, looking back at those ones you've left behind, I think really pulls on the heartstrings and and it 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 ties them together because ultimately when you spend, like uh, Kevin mentioned that he spent 26 years incarcerated and he actually did get COVID and he was released positive with COVID. And they just said, you know, good luck. Here you go. Um, something like that. I mean, 26 years in, in, a, in places that are behind the walls, that becomes your family. And so ultimately, you're leaving your family behind. And so you, you know, I think that that's really how tight knit this speaks, as far as looking backward and saying, hey, you know, I'm not going to leave you behind. I still care about your situations um, and we're going to do whatever it takes to try to keep our voices, you know, loud enough that it, it can carry yours as well. And to listen to them, you know, speak on, on what's going on inside. It's interesting because I received a letter not too long ago that it was a gentleman in, in Wapan. And he said, you know, the, the thing is, is, you know, I'll, I'll write in every now and then and let you know what things are going on in here. But it, it feels almost as if we're all just sick of it. And it's almost to the point where people are so sick of it, of what they're going through, that they don't even want to speak on it anymore because it feels like they've lost hope. They're really beginning to feel hopeless (laughs) about the situation. So as far as new news coming in, people don't want to sound like broken records. You know, there's still people that are sick. There's still people that are... um, that are not able to contact their families. There's still a lot of concerns especially with new strains coming, and we don't really know what's going to happen. There was a situation that was talked about, I want to say it was just over 200 people that were just recently moved around within the Department of Corrections to different facilities. That might have been just strictly from Waupun, but it was like 204 or something like that. And the thing is, is they might be moving individuals around to other locations. However, when you look at the numbers that are still in the Department of Corrections, it's still over 2,000 individuals over capacity. So although we're getting reports that people are being moved around and, and relocated, we're not getting reports that the numbers are dropping. It's just kind of dispersing to different places. And, you know, if you want specifics and you want to get numbers, you can actually uh, check that out on the Department of Corrections website. They update that, I think, every week. So you can see for yourself that even though we're moving people around, facilities are all still over capacity. There's very few that are more so in range of, of what their their uh, design is. So um, even though these guys are talking about what's going on inside, it's it's so many things in addition to the pandemic that they're really just kind of losing hope. And they're just, they don't know what to do anymore. And they just really want people to listen and not just listen, but create change and make something happen that's visual and tactile and that we can see and, you know, put some dignity and, and humanity back into to everything. It's, it is by, by name, by description, called Department of Corrections, not Department of, 
leave here with more mental health issues than when you came in. <laughs> so I think um, that's that's the kind of impact that all of this is having is that it's not correcting things. People are really, really suffering right now. And uh, I just commend these gentlemen for going to such great lengths to bring awareness to not only the COVID in the prison situation, but just also the depth, like you said, of why would someone go to this great lengths to do something when you're already out? Because it's it's people. It's people. And at the end of the day, the only thing that can help people is is love. You know, you can't just dust it under the rug and you can't walk away and forget. So it, it was um, it was very touching to hear their words. Well, hey, my name is Jerome Dillard. I am the state director of ex-incarcerated people organizing, also known as Expo. And I'm just we're just coming off of a Milwaukee to Madison run. I witnessed two of my brothers. Uh, who have spent more than a quarter of a century, both of them, a quarter of a century, um, behind the fences and walls uh, and have been released. And it was moved in our heart when we heard legislators speaking uh, or talking about uh, introducing legislation that would put uh, incarcerated people at the very last end of any uh, immunizations that would uh, take place in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, they're in the 1B category with also the prison guards and uh, uh, other uh, high-risk individuals, just like nursing homes. Uh, but our legislatures uh, moved to pass uh, uh, legislation that would deem them only eligible for the vaccine 25 days after the general public has started re uh, being immunized. Uh, that is saying that they're less than human, that their lives don't matter, and we stand to correct them that they are human. They have families. They have loved ones. They have their mothers, their fathers, their grandparents. They, I mean, they are a part of society, and we must, must treat them humane. And a part of our mission is to uh, fight for the civil and human rights of individuals who are incarcerated uh, or formerly incarcerated in our state. Before I finish my call with Ramaya during their run, I asked if there was anything else from his perspective he wanted to make sure people knew. He mainly expressed the need for the general public to understand the neglect and stigma of formerly incarcerated people. The mass incarceration system already contributes to keeping incarcerated people out of sight and out of mind. Ramaya did not want those impacted by incarceration to be forgotten. Please just don't sit back and say, well, it's not my neighborhood, it's not my demographic. It, it's, you know, Kevin says, it's not my problem. Yes, it is. So our returning citizens, I mean, I'm a testament. Kevin's a testament. We hit the ground running. We work sometimes two jobs at a time. We show up one time, we leave late. We ask for all the overtime you can give us. We happily pay our taxes, give us a shot. So our returning citizens, I ask the community, the community members to give us a shot. Ask your elected questions. Well, what are we doing about the overcrowding? What exactly is TAD? Treatment, alternative, and diversion. Why aren't we investing in that? Why are we locking people up who, who have a disease called addiction? Why are we locking up people that have mental health challenges? 
why don't they, why won't we provide social services for them? So all constituents of the state of Wisconsin, ask those questions because the crime rate up or down that's happening in Madison or Milwaukee, if you think just because you live in another community that it doesn't impact you, it does. It does. I think a lot of times people think of prison as where people go to just be gone. And, you know, that's that whole aspect of forgetting that they, re- they will return. And if you really, really put emphasis on our judicial system and courts and, and the judges and the things that we vote for and we stand behind and we support, then you let's try to look at it from the other point of view is, say somebody is convicted of a crime, whether or not they were guilty or not, let's leave that out of it, but they get convicted of a crime. And then they're sentenced to, say, five years inside and three years on probation, supervision, parole, whatever it may be. Say they serve that time and they come back out to the community, they're still treated as if they have, their background affects everything they do. They're treated as if they're still being looked at with some sort of like a scarlet letter. You know, something to that effect where our our court system gives them a time frame of this is what you need to serve to to make up the time for what we think that you did however that never seems to be the case because it just it's on your record forever a lot of people still struggle with that after the fact a lot of people are still struggling with it um, while inside and these you know rules and regulations that that come about that just really strip your life of of dignity even after you've paid your debt to society per what the court decided that was going to be. Um, So I don't think that we as individuals need to add another sentence to their already given sentence, but it does seem that that's what's happening after the fact. And unfortunately, for 25 of the individuals, they've received a death sentence on top of the sentence that that they were given. So it, it works both ways. It works behind the walls and after when you're outside of the walls, we really need to um, understand that rehabilitation and uh, re-entry is, is, is really, really important. And right now we need more people being able to be <laughs> entering society again and not stuck in an overcrowded prison population with these kind of conditions. Thank you for listening to the Justified Anger podcast. Justified Anger is an initiative of Nehemiah. Special thank you to Ramaya Whiteside, Kevin Cook, and Jerome Dillard of Expo, Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing. This podcast was made with the cooperation and collaboration of Rebecca Barber, Anthony Cooper, Aaron Hicks, Shannon Ross, Jeremy Holliday, Dr. Karen Reese, and Charla Miller. A special thank you to the individuals that shared their stories and experiences of incarceration. Some individuals' names are not included to protect their identity. Theme music by Rudy Bankston. Production and editing is by Eli Steenlich.